this uh, sermon that has uh, an elaborate introduction. Um, and perhaps uh, there we would see as we look at the sermon a reason why Matthew puts this kind of at the head of the teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And as we suggested last week, there are five big sermons in Matthew, three weeks ago, whenever it was. And um, this is the first of those. And uh, this is kind of the, uh, you know, granddaddy of them all. Um, and, and he starts with kind of a pocket guide to the character of the citizen of the kingdom. These are almost like proverbs. They're just memorable, brief expressions that kind of condense Jesus' vision of what a kingdom citizen is all about. And he starts each one of them by saying, blessed are these people. Now, it's ironic because Jesus pronounces a blessing on the very people that the world generally would, would say are pathetic. You know, Jesus reverses worldly values so much in this section and he's it, the first of these blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and the last of these verse 10 blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven both conclude with the same promise the kingdom of heaven which kind of encapsulates this. This is kind of the bookends for this section. Um, and so the, the, the intervening blessings are kingdom blessings, and the Beatitudes themselves show the standards of Jesus' kingdom. And uh, to a great extent, the whole sermon speaks about the kingdom of God in, in various uh, passages. So, what is the person who fits the kingdom like? Three to ten. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, so he begins with a blessing on who? Born in spirit. Now, there, were, there was more than one word in Greek for poor. This is the word for abject poverty. You know, this is not the word for living hand to mouth, you know, barely making ends meet and scraping by. This is the word for desperate need. Now, this would be the word for a beggar. So, is he pronouncing a blessing on somebody who doesn't have enough to eat? Well, it's just poor in spirit. In spirit. So that changes the idea of this. He's not really talking about material circumstances. Whatever you might want to say about the uh, pros and cons of material wealth and poverty, here he's talking about spiritually poor. Now, I don't think he means blessed are the poor in spirit in God's opinion. Because in God's opinion, everyone is poor in spirit. 
I think he's talking about those who recognize themselves how desperately impoverished they are spiritually. We really need to see how we have absolutely nothing and we are in desperate need of God. These are the people who will receive the kingdom, those who are hungering for the kingdom. Those who are not self-sufficient, they're, they're beggars. They, they, they know they have nothing. So God's approval doesn't come to the people who boast about how spiritually rich they are, but to the people who admit how spiritually destitute they are. Those are the ones that are blessed. And isn't it interesting, he starts here. We must be convicted of our lostness and our need before we can make any progress in the kingdom of God. The world prizes self-reliance, self-confidence, self-esteem. <laughs> and Jesus starts by saying, blessed are those who know they are totally worthless. Comments and thoughts on that? What else would you use to, uh, or you know, other passages confirm what he's talking about there? You know, that would be similar ideas. Isaiah 66 might be a good passage. Um, and I believe that even some of the translations use poor here, though the New American Standard does not. Isaiah 66, 2. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Anybody have poor there? I think some of them do. But I do think that's the idea of this passage at any rate. The, the humble, contrite man who trembles at his word. Um, I don't know that it's, you know, in the New Testament, we really have a whole lot of passages that speak of humility in terms of poverty. Can't think of another one outside of the, you know, corresponding passage in Luke. It's just typical of Jesus' teaching. It's a lot like the parables and everything else. It's not real direct. It just doesn't just come right out and say, you know, unmistakably. But it leaves, you know, it gives you the idea, or you have to. I don't know. You could you could almost get more than one meaning out of it if it's that way. If everything was simple and we didn't have to work at it, it would not be as memorable because it would become too easily. You know, I think sometimes Jesus puts some of the greatest pearls in a little less accessible places. And I think we treasure them more that way. So I, I think Jesus intentionally does that. And he does a lot with these. I don't know what to call them. Little parable kinds of statements, little proverb kinds of statements. He's got all kinds of those sprinkled to the Gospels. You know, nothing will be, uh, nothing's covered that will not be brought to light. You know, uh, to whom he has, more will be given to him who does not have, be taken away even what he does have. And, you know, uh, the disciple's not above his teacher. And, and uh, you know, um, just a lot of, lot of different things like that. Um, that. That, you know, are little curious 
things that you you have to mull over in your mind and think about a lot. Jesus taught a lot that way. Now he's got the more developed parables too, but he's got little almost mini parables all over the place. Other thoughts? It shows God's mercy. Shows God's mercy. Mm-hmm. Because he's willing. Like blessing them. Yeah, good point. To bless these who are worthless definitely shows God's mercy. To give the kingdom <laughs> to these shows God's mercy. God likes to be merciful. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. What is the kingdom of heaven? Well, I think it refers to you know, the blessings of God being our king and us being under him. Um, Again, he doesn't really describe that here. He'll talk about it. Your kingdom come. You know, seek first his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yes, but we don't get like somewhere where he says, and by the kingdom I mean this. So, you know, the, the basic idea of the word kingdom means the rule or reign or dominion of someone. And uh, the kingdom of God would obviously be God's rule or reign. But a lot of times it seems to refer, like here, almost to the blessings of being a part of God's kingship, of God's rule or reign. Yeah, I've always thought it's a little confusing. The kingdom of God makes sense. The kingdom of heaven is that the similar term? Is that the same meaning, or is that supposed I think to be? so. The common thought about that, and I have no reason to argue against it, is that it's more commonly used in Matthew because the Jews often didn't say the name God. They would more commonly use a you know euphemism and speak of heaven. So heaven is obviously yeah. referring yeah. to God. Now you know it, Matthew does occasionally say kingdom of God. It's not like he all, all, never does. But I think it was a common way the Jews would speak. They speak more about heaven than they would about God, just out of respect for the name of God. It it, it is in the past, I mean it's totally, I think it tends to make you want to think of heaven. In in these contexts, when they mention kingdom of heaven, so blessed are the poor in spirit for. When you die, you'll go to heaven. Yes, which That's would not be which would be included in the overall blessings of the kingdom. Yes. That's not the only blessing of the kingdom. Look. Right? Yes, that's exactly right. Look at Daniel four twenty six. Here's a here's a passage in the Old Testament that I think uh, might help. This is in the, uh, oh, Daniel talking to uh, Nebuchadnezzar about his dream, and in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Now, clearly, he means it's God that rules, and all the rest of the chapter shows that. But here's a passage that, he- that, that is heaven that rules. So that's, a, you know, it's just, it's not, you know, it's just saying, you know, the place where God is, you know, so it's another way of saying God, really. And it's capitalized. <laughs> that really so. <laughs> but it does show the translators understood it to be a reference yeah. to God. Yeah. When we talk about, like, Washington ruling us, and yes. like that, and, like, Washington's not ruling us. It's the people in Washington that are leading. So Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Uh, the White House said today... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. 
wasn't the building that was yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't grow a little mouth over there on the west. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But we will hear that said. Yeah. Yeah, so it's 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 fairly natural to us in some situations too to do that. And it would be like you know, recognize that it is heaven that rules. We're talking about Babylon, the city being the seat of power as well. Right. Right. So like right. like the Washington, but same kind of Yes. Yes, absolutely. Other thoughts and comments? Well, he moves from this one to, I think, a related one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, that seems so paradoxical, because, you know, why would you pronounce a blessing on the mourner? You know, you'd, you'd feel sorry for the mourner. You know, how sad, how pathetic, how unfortunate. But that's not what Jesus said. It's how blessed are those who, who mourn. And this word for mourning is a strong word that would, you know, be used for like mourning after some terrible, painful loss or whatever. So why is it so good to be sad? Being sad for your sin. Yeah, I don't think he means every sort of mourning. There's obviously some kinds of mourning that there is no divine blessing on, you know. Uh, so, in the context, they mourn their being poor in spirit. They mourn their lostness, their sinfulness, their emptiness. Because this is not just an intellectual thing. Well, I know I'm a filthy, wretched sinner. No, it's, it's you know... It, it has to grieve us. We, we, we hate what we've done to God, and it hurts us. And you look at various passages in the Bible, you see that. I think about prayers, like that Ezra prayed in Ezra 9, or that Daniel prayed in Daniel 9, <clears throat> confessing sins and just grief-stricken. You see, you know, just the lamentation over how we've hurt the Lord. And so we must deal with our being spiritually needy in the, in the proper way, grieving our sins. There can be no divine comfort if there is no grief. You know, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How can you comfort someone who doesn't feel any sense of need, doesn't, doesn't feel a sense of loss and emptiness? Comment. one time in your life you don't just mourn it and then I don't know I'm trying to think about like these things in the context of we're also told to be joyful in the Lord and so I don't know but you don't you don't just like mourn one time and then you're totally joyful and you're all better um I don't know it seems like you maybe have different reasons to mourn as you like live your life or you might need to mourn again you don't just like do it once and get it over with <laughs> <laughs> well i'm not sure does that make sense yeah it's already <laughs> mourned it's all done well yeah maybe we should start with what is i think one of the most misunderstood if, 
passages and concepts in the Bible. This idea of how great our responsibility is to rejoice. You know, I <laughs> hear that being talked about like as if, you know, if you're not happy, you're not a Christian. Because God tells you to rejoice. Well, if we actually look a little bit more carefully at what he says, like in Philippians, which is kind of the book of joy, Paul rejoiced in certain things, and he commanded them to rejoice in the Lord. Now, the point of that in Philippians <laughs> is make your joy in the Lord, not in something else. He wasn't saying, now you be sure you rejoice in the Lord as opposed to grieving in the Lord. He's saying you make sure your rejoicing is in the Lord as opposed to in your own accomplishments and your own greatness or in anything else. And, you know, he illustrates it by talking about how everything he had accomplished in Judaism was actually a liability to him uh, because he valued and treasured supremely knowing Christ. Rejoicing the Lord means you believe that the greatest thing you can ever have is the Lord. It doesn't mean you're happy all the time. You know, and I think, I think we've really missed that. And it's like we've got a Christian responsibility to be happy. Now, there's a sense in which you could say... We, have, we should always have joy in the Lord. You know, because we have a relationship with God, that in itself should be a very joyful thing for us, but not that we're always happy. Now think about like James 4, which is probably one of the uh, least uh, you know, popular and least cited passages in all the New Testament. James 4, 9, whoever quotes this one, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. <laughs> you know, somehow or other in this series of, uh, you know, admonitions, we skip that one. Um, and so I think we mourn over and over again our sins. We mourn the sins of others even. Uh, we grieve the lostness of our, ourselves and of others. At the same time, that we rejoice in the Lord and we're so thankful and grateful for his mercy. I don't know that mourning and rejoicing in that sense are contradictory. If we don't have mourning, we won't have true joy in the Lord. I don't know, does that make any sense? And the passage in James is talking about the same thing as verse 4. I think so. I think that's. Yeah, I mean, go, I mean, you going back to verse eight. Draw near to God and, and cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. That whole thing is absolutely fitting in with exactly, absolutely. I think in the context, he's saying mourn and weep over your sins. You're a bunch of sinful, double-minded people who need to grieve it. And I mean, you know, I if we don't grieve our sins, what's going to happen? We're not going to value the price for it. We won't value what the Lord did to forgive us. We won't try not to. We won't be motivated to overcome our sins. I mean, 
You know, so what do we do? Somebody's like, oh, I just really did something horrible. I, 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 I lied. I feel terrible. I, I shouldn't have lied. And what do we say? Oh, it's okay. It's okay. Everybody does it. You're not perfect. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. You're only human. You know, it's understandable under the circumstances. Don't feel bad. No! Of all things! <laughs> you know, be miserable and mourn and weep. It's, it, it, you know, it's like, and we've used this illustration before, but it's like if you could, every time your little kid touched the oven that was scalding hot, would you snap your fingers and keep the pain away from him? No! You want him to feel that pain. You hate it for him, but he's got to or he's going to burn himself terribly. You know, pain is helpful. It, 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 you know, it really motivates avoidance. <coughs> and so we need that. You know, I mean, what did, what did uh, you know, David say in Psalm 51, which was a psalm of tremendous grief and anguish? You know, he said, the sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, there is an improper sorrow that just becomes despair, like Judas going out and killing himself, where it's just like, well, you know, it's just hopeless. I mean, you know, I talk, was talking to a guy Monday, I think, on the phone, he's like, well, I had not done well the day before, and I said, you know, what do you think? And he said, Oh, I just think I might as well give up. You know, I just can't really do this. Well, <laughs> that is what I told him, and I think this is very appropriate for his situation. I said, that is a cop-out. You just want to take the easy way out. You know, that, you can't, I, don't you ever think that again. Don't you ever say that again. Because that is not right. Uh, I wouldn't say that to everybody that way, but that's what he needed. That's exactly what he was doing. It was going to be easier just to give up than it was to fight it. You know, that's, we don't do that. So it's not despairing. We know the Lord's gracious and merciful. We know that he's forgiving, and we rejoice in that. But there's a sense in which knowing how merciful and, and gracious the Lord is, it ought to make it even more painful for us to hurt him. You know, it's like... You know, what kind of parent do you grieve wounding more? A mean, stern, you know, unfeeling parent? Or a merciful, gracious, loving, kind parent? You know, wow, if you have a parent like that and you really hurt them, that hurts a thousand times worse than... But you don't doubt that that parent still loves you and wants to be close to you and is, is willing to forgive that sin and, is, and, and wants the closeness. And you want the closeness with the parent. You won't let the sin be a barrier, but it still grieves you greatly because you know you've hurt somebody who loves you so much. So it's, it's, it's the proper kind of grief. It's not a despairing grief. It's a grief that brings us to God for comfort. You know, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. You know, the goal of the morning is not despair. The goal of the morning is to receive the comfort of God, to be overwhelmed by his grace and mercy. So I, to me, you know, he says these in such brief, you know, words, but really he says a ton in those words. I'm sorry to add one more thing before you. Oh, that's good. No problem. Um, 
But I think, and this is really hard for me personally, but I think one of the the difference is godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Like whether your sorrow is focused on yourself or whether it's focused on the Lord ultimately, but I think even other people who you have sinned against or whatever, the worldly sorrow leads to what you said, oh, I can never do this, or feeling sorry that you got caught, or like all of those negative kinds of things, but it's the godly sorrow that you feel really bad, um, but you feel badly for the right reasons, and that makes you, that actually is a motivator instead of a stop for you. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when, when, when our grief is just feeling sorry for ourselves, oh, woe is me, oh, I'm, I, I just, you know, I'm just a mess, and I'm just hopeless, and I'm, I, you know, I'll never, I'll never do any good, that's self-centered, you know, that's, that's not, our grief's not a self-centered grief, it's a God-centered grief, yeah, so that's a good point. Well, I think the next one falls in line with this one. Blessed are the, my translation has gentle in the uh, text and humble or meek in the margin. It's clearly not an easy word to translate. And they shall, for they shall inherit the earth. The idea of meek is really almost the idea of uh, moldable. Um, an animal that's meeked an animal that's been trained to respond to the yoke, to the whip, to the bridle, to the whatever. Um, and so we need to have a receptive, moldable heart, a broken will that's submissive to God. I think that's the idea here, really, of the meek or the gentle, especially when it comes to God. You know, meekness toward God is this submissive spirit always willing for God to shape us. Now meekness toward others would involve not seeking revenge, uh, not being self-assertive, trying to throw our weight around. But I suspect he's more thinking about meekness toward God. You know, this this person who's, who's ready for God to come in and transform him. Um, and, and these are the ones who inherit the earth. Um, you know, the, the, the idea of this is we get everything, you know, uh, we get, uh, we're blessed with, uh, a relationship with the one who's the king overall. And so we, we receive the greatest of God's blessings if we're, if we're meek and humble and teachable. Comments and questions on that one? What is the earth that is going to be inherited? I mean, I'm assuming it's not talking about a ball of dirt. <laughs> well... I think that we are the ones who have the earth even now. We are the ones who have all things as God's children. So I don't know that uh, inheriting the earth is necessarily, or any of these others, is necessarily confined to what happens after we die. I think we are the ones that really God blesses with the best things in life. Um, 
you know, when he says they shall be comforted, I don't think he means just in heaven. I think he means, you know, now as well. Or in 6, when they shall be satisfied, I don't think he means just in heaven. Now, I think there's a sense in which the fullness of those blessings does come in heaven. And so in heaven, we are really, we come into full possession of everything that the heirs of God have. But even now, the who is it that, that has the blessing of having you know, everything God has as theirs. It's those who are meek. Comments and thoughts? Is that anything to do with Satan offering Jesus the earth and the temptation? Well, that might have been an illegitimate way to try to get the same thing. So who, Satan was offering Jesus the same thing. I think Jesus was offering Satan like the people, the allegiance of the people who were under his sway. And you know, if you'll bow down and worship me, yeah. then do what? He said it backwards, and that's okay. Oh yeah, sorry, whatever I meant. <laughs> so Satan was talking more about the people and here. You not talking about allegiance of people. No, I think here he means just all... You know, it's almost like in the Old Testament, the land of Israel symbolized just God's blessings for the people. And here the earth, I think, symbolizes just everything God's done for us here. I think six goes right along with this as well. Uh, because if you realize how empty you are, you ought to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And again, these terms were strong terms. You know, not the kind of genteel hunger we feel when we uh, have a hankering for a mid-morning snack. You know, this is starving to death hunger and thirst. An intense craving for what? Righteousness. Yes. Um... There's a lot of debate about what that means. I think we want to be righteous people and we want to be right with God. But maybe especially the idea of realizing how worthless we are, we want to be righteous. You know, and, and, and so often we feel empty, but we don't fill it up with righteousness. We fill it up with a bunch of cotton candy that doesn't fill anything up. With a bunch of cheap thrills that doesn't nourish us. Um, so, you know, we, we sense our emptiness, but we're craving to be right with God. And we're craving to have righteous character and righteous conduct and righteous behavior. You know, and God will fill us up. You know, this, if that's what we really want. I mean, so many times, how, how many people are looking to be righteous? So a whole lot of people looking to, you know, uh, do really good in sports. So a whole lot of people who are looking to rise at the corporate, go up the corporate ladder. A whole lot of people who are looking to, uh, you know, build their character in some video game. But but who's hungry and thirsting because they want to be righteous? Because they know that's what they need, and they know that's what will fill them up. And so, do those, those who are hungry and, and thirst for righteousness, 
do they achieve that? No, God gives it to them. They will be satisfied. The idea God God will do that for them. Even even in that, it's not their accomplishment. They hunger and thirst, and God transforms their lives. All right, comments and questions on verse 6. Would it also lend itself to being, uh, to wanting righteousness and justice around you? I mean, like looking at, looking at everything going on in the world and, and yearning for there to be righteousness everywhere. Well, certainly someone who is filled with the Lord wants righteousness to prevail. But but these are all, to me, primarily personal things. I think in the context, it's more the personal, we want to be righteous ourselves. But but clearly, that kind of a person wants others to be righteous, too. So, so like Lot being vexed in his righteous soul, that right. what was going on. Right. Yeah. That kind of a person doesn't like unrighteousness, clearly. Well, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Maybe that's a little easier for us. I mean, in terms of just understanding, what does it mean to be merciful? Compassionate and caring about others. Yeah, those two things together. You know, mercy is based on compassion. It's based on our empathy. Our, our, our feeling of concern for others, but it, it must express itself. Mer being merciful is not just having a whole lot of care, <laughs> and a whole lot of you know feeling. It, it, it expresses itself in actually doing things to show care, to, to help the person. Um, and like Jesus did. Jesus felt compassion, and he acted uh, to demonstrate mercy. We have received so much mercy from God, we clearly ought to show it. We ought to give it to others. But he expresses it this way. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You know, if you are concerned for others and seeking to help them, you'll be the beneficiary, the beneficiary of God's mercy. You know, if you're stingy and self-focused and you don't seek to serve others, why would God give you any mercy? Comments and questions on that? So this seems to be a transition to something about others. Yes. Uh, although, I don't know that verse 8 is. Sure. But, but I think verses 7 and 9 are mo more focused on others. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, that is a part of Christian character. You know, and it's part of God. You know, he's merciful, so we must be merciful. In eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, we think about purity a lot of times as being, um, you know, not smudged, not stained. But maybe it would be better if we thought more about purity in the sense of like pure gold. What makes something pure gold? 
The dross has been removed. So it's... Purified, yeah, refined. Yeah, it's 100% gold. I think pure in heart is the heart that's unmixed, that's single-focused, that's 100% dedicated to God. Not, you know, now, now you know what, what people are concerned about a lot of times is purity on the outside. You know, looking clean. But this pure in heart. You know, that, that 100% devotion to God in our heart. To want God's will to be done with all of our being. That's pure in heart. And they shall see God. I mean, with that kind of a a total commitment to the Lord, they will have the Lord in their life. I mean, that's their passion through and through. So you know they will be blessed by the Lord himself. Comments and questions on that? So it's, it's like... This suggests that it's possible to become pure in heart if you're not, as opposed to saying, oh, I've messed up, therefore I'm impure and stained and I can't be fixed, so I better give up. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, all of these are not saying, well, lucky you, you happen to be all these things. These, he's saying this, challenging the people to develop their character in these ways. And then in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That seems, that, that's kind of strange one maybe for us at first. Almost like unworthy of inclusion here. Peacemaker? Why is that important? Well, think about what is the most fundamental thing that disrupts peace? Violence. Violence. Division. Self. Self. What's the most fundamental peace? What's the thing that disrupts that? I think the peacemaker is the one who's making peace between people and God. That's the primary idea. Now, I'm not it, like the meek. Maybe there's a secondary idea to he arbitrates disputes among people too. But I think the greater idea is the peacemaker is seeking to bring peace between men and God. Um, he doesn't say peacekeepers, peacemakers, people who bring about peace. Um, isn't that what Jesus is? Isn't that what God is? Isn't that what the whole mission of Jesus was? He came to be a peacemaker. He came to provide peace. We need to be people who are in the business of dispensing peace as well through Jesus. Comments? That kind of makes more sense than yeah. trying to just make peace between people, but like you said, that's the most fundamental peace, and so there's no point really in 
trying it, to fix other problems if that's... You're exactly right. Yeah. You know, if people are not at peace with God, aren't they going to have peace with each other? They don't even have peace with themselves. <laughs> you know, you... You know, trying to get worldly people to live in peace is an exercise in futility. <laughs> you know, because they don't have peace. They don't know peace. They're fundamentally compromised when it comes to peace. Now, verse 10, the last of these Beatitudes, the way I'm counting them. This is eight. We get a we get a baker seven here, <laughs> you know, seven and one to grow on there. But of all things, this is not what we'd expect. This is almost not a normal beatitude. Blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, who would persecute somebody like this? Lots of people. Why? Why would you persecute a humble, you know, merciful, meek peacemaker? Well, the, it shows you what you are if you are not those things. <laughs> That's exactly it right. Maybe like, you know, that one guy, John, who went around telling the king he couldn't have his brother's wife and, and all of that kind of stuff. It makes you uncomfortable. Absolutely. The life of this person, this kingdom citizen, constitutes a standing rebuke to the world, and he speaks out for God, which sometimes leads to rather violent reprisals on the part of the ungodly. Um, now, he's not just saying, blessed are those who are persecuted, because there are some people persecuted for all sorts of reasons other than the kingdom of God. But blessed are those who are persecuted because they're doing what's right. This flies in the face of our concept of the perfect Christian. You know, I think in modern society, the perfect Christian is the one who's always nice and popular and never offends anyone. You know, well, that's not Christ. So why would that be the perfect Christian? You know, blessed are you when you're persecuted because you're righteous. It means you've been doing the right thing. You've been standing up for the Lord. It's the same thing they did to the master. You know, if you're like he is, they'll do that to you as well. You know, it's not a recommendation when, well, nobody's ever upset with me. Everybody always likes me. You know, everybody always feels comfortable around me. Uh, you know, kind of like tooting our horn with that. But really, that's sad. <laughs> It's really tempting to be that way, like to try to phrase things so you don't like offend people or something. And I've noticed in my speech class, even our textbook is talking about how in your speeches, you know, and you're t if you're talking about like married couples, you should mention partners to let homosexuals feel included and stuff like that. And I don't know, like they really drill it into you. Like you have to be very tolerant and I don't know, that's like a real issue today, especially so. Oh, yeah. I mean, in most businesses, they do all this training and, you know, uh, inclusiveness and uh, right. non-discrimination and I don't know what all. I mean, it's become our reason for existence. They, re they several years ago, and, but in my lifetime, 
they totally redefined or re renamed all jobs. Well, uh, most of them. Like male women. <laughs> yeah, we don't have mailmen anymore. We have postal workers. Postal workers or letter carriers. Snow people. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have waiters and waitresses anymore. We have wait staff. Servers. We have wait staff or servers, that's right. We don't have stewards and stewardesses anymore. Flight, Flight attendants. Why can't you have steward and stewardess? That's still including both genders. Well, but it's distinguishing them. And the, oh. the, the uh, thing we want to avoid at all costs is distinguishing between the genders. Do we no longer no have men and women? <laughs> no, we have, we have people. <laughs> we you have people. can't tell the genders. Yeah, we have people, they change. So. Congresswoman, you know. congressperson, representative. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, we just, we've changed so much of our speech in that way. And that was a concerted effort, you know. I mean, we now have police officers, not policemen, men and police women. Firemen, uh, firefighters. Firefighters, yeah. not firemen and firewomen, and so forth and so on. I and mean, you start listening to, it's totally different when I was a kid. When I was a kid, you didn't hear that stuff. But it has changed our vocabulary in my generation. And so, yeah, we're, we're supposed to make sure we never say anything that's offensive to anyone other than Christians. <laughs> They're the only people that you can offend at will and in fact get brownie points over it. <laughs> By using these terms you're saying? Well, or any other way. Well, like, I mean, there's nothing inherently evil about saying, you know, postal worker instead of mailman, but, but, but some of them are inherently evil. Just Right, I agree. The idea like, saying, like saying life partners instead of a married couple. Right, right. right. That's when you think about what it's talking about, that's offensive to a Christian. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm just using that as an illustration of how there's an agenda behind right. everything. But, right. but yeah, I mean, you know, we're we're not supposed to ever we're not to express supposed to express any disapproval of anyone's lifestyle. Now they do draw some lines, but I don't think logically. We are still, thankfully, allowed to express disapproval of pedophiles and uh, generally murderers and rapists, you know, but, but you get into some other things and you cannot express disapproval. If you say, well, I don't think that's right, I don't think that's proper behavior, you are bigoted, you are prejudiced, you are, you know, some kind of a... You're engaging in hate speech instead yes. of protected yes. free speech. Yes, absolutely. Huh. Yes. You know, so it's hate speech to say homosexuality is wrong. At the moment, it's still okay to say pedophilia is wrong. But who knows? That may change in the next generation. I mean, maybe, maybe it would be bad eventually to say murder is wrong. You know, can't say abortion's wrong. You know, I mean... We've, we've made lots of strides in the direction of, you know, uh, the agenda the devil wants us to have, and that is saying all sins are okay. My boss always tells me I need to live in the real world, that I live in a bubble. Because of, you know... It's a nice bubble, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
I and mean, don't agree, you know, don't accept all that. Isn't this what Jesus is saying? Isn't this Jesus? Was he conforming to the standards of his society and his culture? Was he persecuted? Were the first century Christians persecuted? Why? Because they were not doing and saying what everybody else thought well, they ought to, ought to be. They were offending people. In fact, you remember when the disciples in Matthew 15 say to Jesus, do you realize that this statement offended the Pharisees? Well, he just poured it on when they said that. You know, he said, the blind guides, the blind lead the blind, they both fall in the ditch. So he didn't really make it less offensive. <laughs> but, but, I mean, they felt kind of like, like you're saying that. So. Romans 12, 2 says we're supposed to be transformed, not conformed to this world. Yeah. So, we're, we, we will be persecuted. Now, look at how he does this. I believe 11 and 12 extend on 10, but I wouldn't consider them a part of the Beatitudes. And, and see if you can see why. Let me read 10 through 12 and see if you can find the shift that takes place. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What's the difference? Second person. Second person. The Beatitudes are in the third person. Hmm. We shift in 11 and 12 to the second person. He's clearly extending on verse 10. But, but in the second person, turning to them and saying, so blessed are you guys when people insult you, persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you, and just rejoice. You've got a reward in heaven, and you're following in the footsteps of the prophets, and that's pretty good people to be following. I right, comments and questions about the Beatitudes. And the sequel. So who's he talking to? Well, he's talking to his disciples uh, from verse 1. There's a multitude, but his disciples came to him and he opened his so mouth. So when he turns, teach and say. you're saying he's not talking, addressing verse 11 and 12 to the multitude? The multitude's listening, but I really think he's speaking throughout this to the disciples. He's not. So what's some, the shift is what I'm trying to say. Well, look at verses 1 and 2. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went out on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he saw the multitude. They're up there, but his disciples came, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying. Now, the shift from 10 to 11 is just that he's been talking in general terms. Blessed are the ones who. And then he turns and makes the application to those he was talking to. So blessed are you, therefore, when these things happen to you. 3 to 10 is more abstract. You know, blessed are the ones who. And who, const what, who constituted the disciples at this point? The, oh, we're talking about more than the 12. I think so. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think his followers wouldn't have been the whole multitude, but some in that were. Maybe Matthias was there. <laughs> Maybe he was. <laughs> he accompanied with Jesus from the baptism of John. That's right. So it probably was. I just wonder what they thought about all this. 
Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, and this is just the introduction to the sermon. Of course, I assume we have an abridgment. It just seems sort of like rapid fire. Jesus probably didn't. Jesus probably did not only preach five or ten minute sermons. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm assuming there's more to it than what he says, but that he gives us an adequate summary of what he says. But yeah, it's, it's heavy stuff. So we have the Cliff Notes version of the sermon. That's right. Okay. Well, so he goes. He goes from the character of the kingdom citizens to like their their nature, maybe their responsibility. Thirteen to sixteen. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we are the salt of the earth. Now, what does salt do? What is your blood pressure? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you got low blood pressure, it's good for you. Now, that's probably not what he had in mind here. It flavors. Flavors and preserves. preserves. Now, salt is different from other stuff. You know, what if you, you know, it kind of looks like it. What if you put granulated sugar in the place of salt? Does it do the same thing? No. I mean, salt is salt. If you want to give flavor, salt will enhance it, sugar will sweeten it. (laughs) And, you know, salt will preserve, sugar won't. Um, And and think about, like, and I've used this illustration before, it's a Robert Turner illustration, but what uh, what if you were curing ham? You pack it in salt and you hang it up in the shed or whatever for, I don't know, how long do you hang ham up? A month or two? Uh, I figured you probably did that. In your I don't day. know. Okay. Well, you hang it up for a while and uh, then you rake the salt off and you bake and eat the ham. Well, what if you did that and you bit into the ham and it had no taste? That would be weird after curing it for a while. So you went back to the shed and you got a little bit of the salt and you put it in your mouth and it tasted like ham. (laughs) Hammy salt. (laughs) That's not supposed to work that way. The ham's not supposed to flavor the salt. The salt's supposed to give flavor to the ham. Well, you know, what happens to a Christian who rubs elbows with the world, and pretty soon, instead of salting the world, the Christian tastes like the world. We are supposed to be distinct from the world. The only way we can fulfill our function as salt is if we're not like the world. Does that make sense? So he's saying if the salt loses its saltiness, if it loses its, 
it's it's distinctiveness, it's the essence and nature of being a disciple. Then what good is unsalty salt? Have you ever heard of anybody salting the salt? You got unsalty salt, you got something that's worthless. It's about like having unwet water. You know, it doesn't do. Might as well just throw it on the ground and walk on it. Because if it's not salty, it's not much of anything. I mean, what would you use salt for if it wasn't salty? Pavement. Yeah, exactly. What would you use a Christian for if he's not distinctly like Christ in his nature? You get a Christian who's so much like the world you can't tell the difference, he's worthless. And what are we always trying to do? Fit in. Yeah. Make sure we don't look too different. Our calling is to look different and be different. The very idea of trying to fit in and be like the world is contradicts the very purpose. What if the salt's real goal was to taste like ham? Well, what good is the salt then? Comments and questions? You're the light of the world. Um, what, what point does he make about that? Can't be hidden? Yeah. What good is hidden light? You know, I, I noticed that, you know, right now, the lights that you have are up on the ceiling over here on the table. Now maybe we just aren't seeing the lights that you have under the couches and the chairs. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. Just the one under the blanket. Yeah. Is there a particular reason we tend to put lights up on the ceiling and on the tables? So the little light rays can go out and touch everything. Yeah, I mean, it's what we use light for. It's to see by. Unless you're looking under the couch, the light under the couch doesn't really help anything. You know, so what good is our light if nobody can see it? There's no such thing as secret discipleship. One side will destroy the other. Either the secrecy will destroy the discipleship or the discipleship will destroy the secrecy. You have to let your light shine. People have to be able to see your godliness. We, why, why would we be tempted to hide our light? Well, if you're shining, you're a pretty good target. Fear of rejection. Not wanting to stand out. All those things. And uh, we'll use a different excuse. You know, we'll say, well, you know, uh, I'm just trying to be wise. You know, you know, you got to kind of gradually break people in and get them used to new ideas. Or, you know, I wouldn't want to, prema to cause a premature conflict. You know, we've got all these rationalizations to make sure nobody sees our light. 
why does he say it's so important for others to see our light? So people will glorify God? Absolutely. That's a pretty important reason. If, if others can't see our light, God is robbed of being glorified. And we don't want that. What we want is other people to see our good works and they glorify God. They, because they can see God's trans, transforming power in our life. This is not saying make a show. Try to get attention or to impress people. He'll deal with that in chapter 6. He's saying here, don't hide the fact you're a Christian. And, and, and how you live and who you are. You know... Like they, I've told this story too, but kind of just a preacher's tale of, you know, the guy who's, you know, working with a pretty rough crowd and somebody knows he's, he's been working there for a few months and, you know, said, well, you know, what's it like being a, being a Christian among those guys? And he's like, well, they haven't found out yet. You know, well, why not? You know, what a tragedy. It ought to be obvious. You know, we shouldn't be trying to make sure they don't find out. We ought to be eagerly allowing God's light in us to shine forth. Comments and questions? Well, he goes on from this to kind of the guts of the sermon. You know, he's going to be dealing with the standards of his kingdom. This would be almost a section on kingdom righteousness or kingdom behavior. And, you know, he's going to have to, first of all, clarify some things. Jesus was so much attacked by the Jewish leadership that it looked like he was against the law of God. To people, they would have thought him as, as his gospel being against, because it was against their traditions. And so Jesus doesn't want them to misconstrue what he's saying. Jesus is going to start making some contrast. You've heard this, but I say that. But Jesus wants it understood. He is not against God's law. What he's teaching is actually the fulfillment of God's law. What he's against is the perversions of God's law by the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees. It's kind of like it is for us. Sometimes people get the mistaken impression that we must not be very religious. Because it seems like we're always opposed to various religious practices and activities. You know, somebody comes in our house and they don't see all the statues that they see in the houses of the, you know, their friends that are Catholics. And they notice that, you know, we don't have a big Easter pageant and we don't have a Christmas service. And, and, you know, they start noticing various things that we don't do. It's possible for somebody to actually, you, you guys must not be very religious. <laughs> you know, you must not be Christian. <laughs> well, you know, you could get that impression. If your idea of Christianity is, <laughs> you know, what the Catholics do, what the Protestants do, etc. And, and they could get the impression from Jesus that he was against God's law if their idea of God's law was the practices of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because he was very different from those. And so that's where he's going to go with this. He's going to clarify his relationship to the law before he goes into a series of contrasts that's going to really show 
the standards of the kingdom, the kind of behavior and lifestyle kingdom citizens have to display. All right, comments or questions on any of that? Well, we will stop there then and uh, pick up in verse 17 next week. That took us a while, but I thought it probably would. So. Sermon on the Mount is awesome. There is, if there's anything better than Sermon on the Mount in the Bible, I wouldn't know what it would be. So. <laughs>